Welcome to Inside Out with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, God Hugs Darwin and They Both Win. Our guest is Reverend Michael Dowd, best-selling author of Thank God for Evolution. Reverend Dowd is passionate about building bridges between science and religion. His book has been endorsed by six Nobel Prize scientists and by spiritual leaders as well. How does a guy go from fundamentalist Christianity to becoming America's evolutionary evangelist, and why? Stay tuned and let's find out. And now let's hear from your host, Beth Green, from the inside out. Well, hi. I have been looking forward to this for weeks now, ever since we've been planning. And the most amazing thing just happened about five minutes ago, because I have been really anxious about all the logistics about the show. I'm not afraid to talk to my guest. I'm not afraid of standing up in front of a thousand people, but I was afraid that I was going to mess up on the cues and all of that. And guess what? Somebody else messed up on the cues. <laughs> in fact, uh, that was our second try trying to get on the air. And it started in the middle of the music in, instead of the beginning. And I just sat here and I thought, isn't the universe marvelous? Instead of me worrying about me messing up, I get to sit here and watch somebody else do it and then relax into it and share it with you because that's inside out. This is a program where we are going to be very real and where I intend to share with you what's really going on for me. One of the things that I want to tell you is that in preparation for this program, I've done a little bit of thinking about what I might want to say when I get on the air. And I never do that because I'm an intuitive. I'm guided. I'm going to do a two-week intensive next week with James, and I haven't even given it a second thought. I can do a three-day workshop and never think about it. But for some reason, I was a little bit clutched around the show. And when I went through what all my fears were, what I realized was one thing. They were all about me. <laughs> Am I going to flub this? Are you going to like me? Are you going to click this show off? Is it going to be a success? And it made me laugh because, you know, there it is in a nutshell. What's wrong with humanity is obviously wrong with me too. <laughs> Which is that uh, I tend to think in terms of, and what about me? So I'd like to dedicate this show to being concerned for us all and trying to make a shift in our thinking. So before I bring on this wonderful guest that who has uh, volunteered to help us launch this new program, before I do that, what I'd like to do is do an opening. And an opening is an opportunity for us to get connected to ourselves, to connect to one another, to connect to the divine if we think in spiritual terms, connect to the universe if we think in other terms, and just go really deep into ourselves. So let us go within. Feel our common humanity. Feel our connection to one another. Know that I am you, even if you're on the other side of this microphone, that there's a piece of you and me and a piece of me and you. And that we're all struggling to co-create a better world. 
one where there is more humanity and less violence. One where there is greater regard for life, human and otherwise. One where we are well enough to care about one another and our earth. (sighs) Yes. And now I'd like to invite my guest, Michael Dowd, to join us. Michael, are you with me? I am here, Beth. Good to be here. Thank you. The thought that came to mind, because I have some delicious questions to ask you today. I mean, to me, they're delicious because I really want to know the answers. But there's something more that just came to me that I'd like to ask. Mm -hmm. I know, Michael, that you're a person who is devoting your life to some cause uh, greater than yourself, but which includes you. And I'm wondering why. Was it something that you were born with, just a caring about the world, the planet suffering? Was it something that grew on you over the years, or was there some moment in your life that just turned something on in your head and say, gee, I have to do something about this? Yeah, good question. It was a kind of a combination. I mean, I think we're all, we all have a sense that what ultimately gives our lives meaning is our legacy, what we pass on, uh, how we make a difference in the lives of others, uh, how we contribute, whether we're a blessing to others or not, and to what degree. Mm-hmm. And I did have a, 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 you know, for most of human history, and certainly all animals, their legacy uh, is mostly biological, passing on children. But now we live in a world of symbolic language and creations of various kinds. And so our legacy can be far larger and broader than, uh, than simply a biological legacy. And I had a vision on a mountaintop outside of Frankfurt, Germany, when I was, gosh, 20, 21 years old. Mm. And um, it, 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 was, it was very powerful. It was, one of the, it, it was one of the most powerful visions I've had in my entire life. Uh, smoked some good hashish uh, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, was on top of this mountain outside of Frankfurt. And I was given a vision of my death. And um, I imagined uh, you know, living an entire lifetime, 100 years is what I imagined, and then the the voice in my head, call it God, call it my unconscious, call it reality, call it whatever, but this, this voice said, what is the meaning of your life? What difference are you going to make, even if you live 100 years? Mm-hmm. And I actually could see the entire contours of Frankfurt, Germany, because as you probably know, in Germany and Europe, they can't afford the suburban sprawl that we have here. So the cities are fairly circular, and then there's farmland surrounding the cities. Mm-hmm. And so I could see the, the entire outlines of the city from this mountaintop uh, vantage point. And I imagined somebody was born and they lived their life and, you know, maybe, you know, every several years they fly off somewhere and then they come back and, you know, they go to school. And, you know, of course, the sun, the earth is turning and this, you know, the seasons are happening and everything else. And if there was a serious, you know, drought or whatever, you know, that would impact things. But then I imagined 100 years went by, kind of like a time lapse photography. And... Um, and the question was, what changed? Mm-hmm. Well, the city grew a little bit, and uh, that person had whatever impact they did, and the mountains eroded a little bit, and you know the river, if it was the, if there was a serious flood, might have rerouted just a teeny bit, the Rhine River, but and and 
the question that haunted me was, what is the meaning of your life? What are you going to give your life to? And, you know, normally 20, 21 year old people, kids don't think of their legacy. They don't have, you know, they think you're, you know, when you're that age, you kind of think you're immortal. Mm -hmm. But this mm -hmm. vision had me really think about what is my life about? What am I here to contribute? How can I make a difference in a way that, and I, and what I felt actually was that I, I was destined, I was called to make a big difference. Mm -hmm. I, and, uh, and I didn't know what that meant. And so I came off the mountain and, and the next week went to church, this girl I was interested in and, and, uh, they were showing some Billy Graham association film. I had this born again experience and I committed my life to Christ and had this because I grew up Roman Catholic, but I didn't have sort of that personal evangelical, you know, born again kind of thing. And, um, and of course, then I thought that what I was supposed to do is just get people saved because Jesus, Jesus was going to come back in the end, and the end of the world was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think we'd ever see the year 2000. And then in 1988, I was introduced to this perspective that I've now been evangelizing ever since. And it's really the epic of evolution. It's sometimes called big history or the, the universe story. It's, it's essentially the first and only evidence-based creation story that we have. It tells us who we are, where we are in time and place. Uh, time and space, who we're related to, and you know, and how we find meaning, and it's evidence-based. It's the it's the first one that's globally produced. It's not just a mythic creation story. It's it's uh, it's science-based, but it can be also told in its mythic dimensions. Now, it's in Michael, its inspiring dimensions. Before you, um, I'd, I'd be happy for us to come back to that, but I want to backtrack uh, sure. a little bit because I'm wondering if you are aware of or we care to share, what do you think may have been psychologically motivating that experience? Because we are of a piece. You know, we have a mystical experience because there's something in us. I mean, this is my opinion, of course. Something in us is already geared to asking that question. Uh, I'll, I'll share a little bit about myself. I had a, a kind of awakening that I needed to do something about uh, the state of human consciousness on our planet, oddly enough, when I was nine. And I'm not trying to one-up you. <laughs> I'm just sharing this. And um, I was very, very distressed because it was during the McCarthy period and people were being arrested for having ideas that were different. And it was a very oppressive kind of time. And, I, you know, I grew up at the, in the 40s and early 50s. And it was, there was so much needless suffering but I can also honestly say that my father, who had a nervous breakdown when I was six years old, I, he used to go to sell. He was a very, very bad salesman and did not make much money. And sometimes he would take me with him. And I saw the way that the buyers treated him. It was that hierarchy because these guys didn't have much power either, but they had this one moment of the power over this poor salesman. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm, sure. And... It was so painful for me, and I remember not wanting to even go. I hated to see what my father had to go through in order to make a living to help support our family. Yeah. And I think that that just bothered me deeply. And also, I was born at the end of the Holocaust, and we had relatives, the few you know who died. Most of our relatives were wiped out because I grew up in a Jewish family. Sure. And so there was a lot of things that were going on that kind of oriented me to having this kind of feeling that, oh, my God, I have to do something. So I'm wondering if there's something analogous for you or some version for you that you would care to share. 
The only thing that comes to mind, Beth, is that I am one of the most mission-driven human beings I've ever met. And that's what I fell in love in with, with Connie about. Uh, I hear I met another human being because I'd never met anyone, male or female, that shared this particular sense of life purpose or mission. That is evangelizing evolution, sharing the science-based mm-hmm. history of everyone and everything, our inner nature and our outer nature in ways that that transform people's lives personally, but also mm-hmm. helped transform their relationships, helped heal their relationships, and helped them have the tools to live a, a more integrous, loving, compassionate, generous life, and motivating them to work together with people of very different beliefs mm-hmm. in the service of a healthy future for all of us. Mm-hmm. So the bottom line for me has always been, or at least since I was 20, has has always been how can I make the biggest difference for the planet in my lifetime, given my particular unique gifts and challenges? And how beautiful that you found a partner who shared that. Oh, tell me. Oh, what a difference <laughs> that makes. We're now going to take a break, and when we get back, we'll resume our discussion with Michael Dowd and hear more of what this evolutionary evangelist has to share with us. Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Bring Beth into your world in person or via the Internet. Learn how by visiting her website, BethGreen.org. At the website, sign up for her newsletter to keep abreast of her latest activities, blogs, videos, and more. Just for signing up, you'll receive a free PDF copy of Living with Reality, her 688-page volume that helps us understand ourselves in relatable terms, as well as offers a proven program to heal and co-create a better world. But there's more. Learn about Beth's four other books, both fiction and nonfiction. Check out her gorgeous music, which is heartfelt and mystical. Become acquainted with Beth and James's programs for healing and training, and discover their community, the Stream Center for the New Spirituality, which welcomes you wherever you are in the world. All this and more can be found at Beth's website, www.bethgreen.org. Again, that's bethgreen.org. Invite meaning and inspiration to your life. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. You're tuned in to Inside Out with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To reach us on the show, please call 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. If you'd rather send us an email, the address is Beth at BethGreen.org. Now, back to Inside Out. Well, it's so nice to be back. And my guest is Michael Dowd, who is a reverend. And uh, he was at one time the pastor of some United uh, Church of Christ. And uh, if I say anything wrong, Michael, just correct me. Uh, but don't embarrass me too much in front of the public. <laughs> so, I promise. I won't. Okay. So what do you think it was about evolution that shifted your perspective from the traditional Christian view, which you had become engaged with and that you grew up with? 
Well, basically, it was right relationship to reality. I mean, every culture, that's the most important thing to live a good life, um, uh, to live a healthy life, to, to die a, a peaceful death, to leave a sweet legacy. It, it's That happens, and, and, and cultures can thrive when they're in right relationship to reality. I, I see that as a secular way of saying in right relationship to God. It's, yeah. you know, I use the word God and the word reality interchangeably. Um, and I'm using the word reality pretty much in a standard dictionary sense. I mean, one of my favorite quotes from Philip K. Dick, he says, reality is that which when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. Right. So what do we, what does it mean to be in right relationship to nature, to our inner nature, to our outer nature, to our social nature, to our interpretive nature? And, um, I just found that an evolutionary worldview was so much more real, undeniably, inescapably real than a mythic world interpreted in otherworldly literal ways. Um, you know, the idea that the second coming of Christ was some ma- superhero coming down magically in the clouds was the kind of thing that, you, you know, you'd experience in a dream, but it wasn't real in the way that, you know, that tree right there is real or the sun. And so it just, uh, I began realizing that, uh, that, um, you know, we've bound and gagged God 500 years ago. We basically exiled God to the outskirts of the universe. 2000. <laughs> 2000 years ago. No, no, really 500 years ago. Really? Because it was when we began to uh, think of nature as a complex clock. Because oh, all no, clocks, I, all yeah. the clocks have the creativity that made them outside of it. So nature became an it rather than a thou to be related to. It became an it that we could exploit and, and for our benefit, or so we thought. Yeah. But we didn't realize that that we were talking about the body of the divine, and it, you know, there's there's only one God that we need to, you know, whose whose laws we must obey, or whose wrath, metaphorically speaking, we will experience. And uh, you know, as Frank Lloyd Wright said, I believe in God. I spell it N A T U R E. Yeah. Well, so, I, yeah, you know. I couldn't agree with you more, uh, Michael. Now, I came from a some a somewhat different way of experiencing this, and mm-hmm. if you don't mind, I'd like to share a little bit of that. Because I came into it as a mystic. I had a mystical experience where God revealed God's self to me as being very different from God as I had been trained to think of God. Sure. And so it's, a, it's kind of like coming from the opposite side of the coin and coming mm-hmm. to the same place. Because I had one of those metaphysically wild experiences in the mid-80s where I saw white light, and, and I did not smoke hashish, by the way. <laughs> I was never into drugs because I had been a socialist and a revolutionary before that, and that was too dangerous. You could not, you could not be into drugs and think you weren't going to get arrested. So anyway, plus I'm, you know, I'm too scared. But um, anyway, I had one of those white light experiences, and God came, and I thought it was and all that stuff. And God said to me, and it was like a voice in my head, and it was booming voice in my head. And it's, and I, God said to me, and remember, Beth, God is changing. Mm-hmm. And that was the thing that tipped me off to evolution. Yeah. And I started to think of God as evolving. And in fact, God and I had many conversations after that, which is that God is not static, perfect, the way we think about it, which is a concept. I mean, and after all, guys, we're just talking about concepts. You can believe any concept you want, but this is the way I conceptualize it. But that God is a part of reality. And if, and God said to me, Beth, are you changing? And I said, yes. And he said, well, are you part of me? And I said, yes. And he said, well, if you're part of me and you're changing and I've got to be changing. So 
I started to think of God no longer as perfect. And for me, the impact of that was that I, um, I could see that we were shaming ourselves for being human and because we're saying there is a perfect God and there's us, sinful, shameful, imperfect, whatever it is, when that isn't the case. And there is an evolving God in my concept and very closely akin to what you're talking about because I see God almost as a process rather than certainly not a person, but that it's this higher wisdom, this integration of consciousness, which can support all of us. So what I loved, I saw one of your talks, I, uh, which you, you had sent me some links, and they were just wonderful. And you talked about the struggle of humanity, uh, that we have to deal with our evolutionary nature. Who are we? And instead of creating these mental constructs about of what a perfect human being is supposed to be and how we should be, but really looking at who we are, but still taking accountability to be responsible towards our planet, which I know is something that is very dear to your heart. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, for me, reality is my God. Evidence is my scripture. Integrity is my religion. Mm-hmm. And... Um, being a blessing to the future is my mission. And mm-hmm. it's really that simple. Uh, I find that the most powerful ways of, of experiencing reality um, is not just sort of mystically. Mystical is great. But all forms of evidence is the main way that reality, God, uh, the universe, nature is revealing itself. And um, I'm somewhat of a pragmatist. I, I tend to not focus so much on metaphysical beliefs and various philosophies and thinking. It's like, you know, we're right now at a place. I mean, Connie and I have spoken to eighteen hundred groups in the last eleven years. That's all we do is travel North America permanently. That's that's yeah. you know. Yeah. And um, what drives us to do that is that we are now living in a time when the greatest moral issue in the history of humanity is right here, right now, and it's it and it it's climate. It's what what we yeah. do in the next five years will determine how much suffering billions of animals and humans have to undergo in the coming centuries. Yes. And so how to help humanity, not just individuals, but also groups, corporations, politicians, um, think about reality in ways that are aligned with reality. I mean, if if you think that the the end of the world is going to happen and Jesus is going to come back on the clouds in the next 20, 30 years, you are out of touch with reality. That's a belief system that causes good people to do bad things and sometimes even vote in evil ways. So I'm I'm trying to help people think differently in a way that's inspiring them. So it's not beating them over the head, but inspiring them to think about evidence as the word of God. You know, that that, uh, that big history is the new Genesis, that we, that, that God, reality is as much active and, and evolved today as ever in human history, but we've just been blind and deaf to it because we thought nature was a complex clock. We didn't know that it was the body of God. Well, you see, I don't make a distinction between the mystical realms and nature because I think the problem has been that we are separating things, that we are making things different. I'm not accusing you of this. No, I agree. I, okay. I have no, so no problem with that. People think in terms of the natural and the supernatural. But I think it's all natural. It See, is when, all natural. That's yeah, the thing. I mean, but, even, even when you look historically, 
the concept of the supernatural is a Western invention. It only came into being about 600 years ago when we started understanding things in a natural way. Then some people deemed it necessary to propose a supernatural realm. But prior to that, we used daytime and nighttime language in the same, in the same way we have day experiences and night experiences. And our nighttime experiences are sometimes bizarre. We fly and we do all kinds of seemingly miraculous things in our dreams. But when you fly in your dreams, you're not having a miraculous experience. You're having an experience common to the dream state. <laughs> I, I get that. But here, you take somebody like me, and I'm just, I'm playing a little devil's advocate here, but I really, I'm because I'm so, in, you know, pleased and happy to see the work that you're doing, and I feel so supportive of it. But I'd like to include this aspect in the natural world, which is, take somebody like me. I have an inner voice that has been guiding me since 1978 and even more since 1980, that tells me what to eat, what to do, and so on. Now, that inner voice has provided me with an incredible amount of information that I could not get in any way that I can think of. For instance, I'm an intuitive counselor, and I sit down with a person, and I just tune in, and I see things in them. So you could say, well, it's their psyche is com- communicating with my psyche. So I can, I can get that, Okay. Then I'm told, uh, I bought a house. I had a voice say to me, you see that house in the newspaper? You're going to buy that house. And it was absolutely impossible for me to have bought that house. But I did. Six weeks later, I was living in it, and my real estate agent didn't even want to take me there. I I don't want to go into details about my own stories, but I'm just trying to give you a flavor of uh, the kind of information and guidance that I have gotten that I... I walk into a room and I'm told t- to make a tape and the tape is going to be 45 minutes, but I don't even know that. And I open my mouth and I don't know what the topic is. And then it comes out like someone else had written it and it's over and it's 45 minutes later. So there's some way in which, and I think of this as natural. I think of this as there's levels of consciousness and awareness and wisdom that come from the integration of all our knowledge Mm -hmm. that I as an individual human being am not capable of myself but it's like a computer that is synthesizing massive and massive amounts of information and that if we could tap into that this is just my way of a metaphor for it the more that we're able to tap into that broader intelligence and it's not higher in the sense of the old hierarchy but that it's more comprehensive if we can be that i'm sure you had an inspiration when you had your experience you've had many inspirations i'm sure i'm sure everyone in our audience has moments where they're inspired by something that they really couldn't possibly have figured out themselves but there it is because in that moment we're not so defensive or we're open or there's some moment waiting for us. And in my case, it's something, of course, that I've worked on and that I do every day. And that is what I sometimes call God, but I don't need to call it God because I really don't care what you call it. Because whatever you call it, the rose will smell as sweet no matter what you call it. Just like you said about reality, it's what left, what's left when beliefs go away. So... That's how I feel that we we need to also integrate that there are dimensions of understanding that all of us, perhaps in my view, need to tap into in order to help us at this point, energies, consciousness, wisdom, because we are 
I would say, in a, in a mess. <laughs> well, I agree, but I don't think that the answer is for everybody to become really uh, uh, adept at being at that sort of uh, tapping the wisdom of this larger uh, intelligence within and, and around us. Uh, I think that the main thing is that we now have to create structures of support, governmental, political, economic, social structures that make it so that the easier, cheaper thing is the right thing to do. Right now, mm-hmm. we have structures, uh, economic and political and governmental structures, that the easier, cheaper thing to do is usually the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so what what's required for that isn't so much an individual having a, a, a psychic uh, brilliance uh, or, you know, like just that wisdom. It, it can be, and it often is. I mean, Einstein had a vision of riding a beam of light, mm-hmm. you know, which was a private revelation. It was, an, it was an intuitive inspiration. But then he wrote a paper, and the whole scientific community went to work trying to disprove it. Mm-hmm. And that skeptical, cynical, doubting mindset is essential for us to sort of weed through because there have been people who have paid attention to the voices uh, in their heads and the, and the guidance that they've been getting. Uh, you know, Hitler was one of them. People can do great evil as well as great good. So both are possible. So the question then becomes, how do we discern if some, you know, if person A, person B, and person C all say they've gotten this deep inner wisdom and it's saying in three very different directions, how do we discern as a community which is going to be the best one for us to take? Is it simply going to be the most charismatic person that leads the day? So that's why I see evidence as modern day scripture, that scientific evidence, cross-cultural evidence and historic evidence is what sort of gives legs to the, to the, to the brilliance that people like you can, can tap, um, but that can move our whole culture forward, I think in healthy ways. Well, that's a very interesting point, and it's an important point. And, uh, I'd like to share a perspective on that, which is, uh, uh, what what this God, when I used to call God, God, told me 30 years ago is that you should make decisions from the intersection of intuition, observation, experience, and common sense. <laughs> <laughs> right, but it's, but it's still but it's still one individual. In other words, we, oh no no no! Thi- wait, let me let me just get, go, go further. So that was the first thing was that I so appreciate you know that we have to bring common sense into spirituality, and that's sure. one of the things that's my job sure. is to you know I write articles about is this does this make any sense to you? Mm-hmm. But then the collective, and this is just another way of uh, you know of thinking about it or adding something to what you're already doing, is to what we do in our organization, for instance, in the stream, is we come together collectively to try to set aside our egos because there's nothing worse than someone who thinks that they're channeling God and are really being driven by their fear, by their ego, by some complete fantasy. It's very dangerous. I'm totally with you on that. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that, that is, that's, we have to be very careful about that. And what we, one of the ways that we try to do that, uh, deal with that as a community is we come together and we ask a question together, such as, would it be for the highest good of all, including us, for us to do X or Y or Z? And we're trying to be inclusive. And I would love people to be thinking in terms of what is for the highest good of all. And that's, I think, so much in the spirit also of what you're teaching because you're asking us to do what is for the highest good of all our children, our animals, and one another, and not necessarily to be driven by something which is easy but short-term and could end up being destructive in the end. 
No, exactly. And and I think that that what you just uh, uh, articulated really well is that to tap into a larger collective intelligence is that goes beyond the intelligence of any one individual. Uh, it opens up all kinds of new possibilities. I mean, I, I, I personify time for me, you know, uh, rea- ultimate reality is personified in past, present and future. So as a, as a Christian naturalist, God, the creator is the personification of the past, everything that created up to this moment. Mm-hmm. God, the sa- savior is the, is the personification of the future. So I've committed my life to serving the future. Uh, yeah. the, I, I believe the future is calling us to greatness mm-hmm. and that, that, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what your beliefs are. If you personify the future and ask, what is the future calling me to greatness for? How can I contribute? How can I be a blessing to others? How can I be a contribution to the future? Then some really exciting stuff opens up. And of course, the personification of the present is the spirit, the, which the Hebrew word for spirit was wind, breath. It's the personification of wind and breath. The mm-hmm. only place that we can honor the past and serve the future is in the present moment. I'd love you to share your website with our audience before we go to our next commercial break. Sure. Our, our main website, we've got several, but the main website that's got all the cool stuff <laughs> is thegreatstory.org, www.thegreatstory.org. Dot O-R-G. And if you don't have a chance to write that down, uh, that is going to be on our host page um, with Michael's podcast. We have that very website. So at that, at this point, uh, James, would you like to take us to commercial break? Yes, yes. Uh, by the way, if you have any questions or comments, please call us in. Uh, call in to us at one eight six six four seventy two fifty seven ninety five. We're now going to take a break, and when we get back, we'll resume our discussion with Michael Dowd and hear more of what this evolutionary evangelist has to share with us. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Bring Beth into your world in person or via the Internet. Learn how by visiting her website, BethGreen.org. At the website, sign up for her newsletter to keep abreast of her latest activities, blogs, videos, and more. Just for signing up, you'll receive a free PDF copy of Living with Reality, her 688-page volume that helps us understand ourselves in relatable terms, as well as offers a proven program to heal and co-create a better world. But there's more. Learn about Beth's four other books, both fiction and nonfiction. Check out her gorgeous music, which is heartfelt and mystical. Become acquainted with Beth and James's programs for healing and training, and discover their community, the Stream Center for the New Spirituality, which welcomes you wherever you are in the world. All this and more can be found at Beth's website, www.bethgreen.org. Again, that's bethgreen.org. The 7th Wave Channel on The Voice America Network. You're tuned in to Inside Out with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. 
To reach us on the show, please call 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. If you'd rather send us an email, the address is beth at bethgreen.org. Now, back to Inside Out. Okay, but I understand we have a caller. Hi, it's Helen. Hi, Helen. I would like to ask Michael if he could give us an example of evidence-based spirituality used in an everyday example, like a conflict with your wife. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, the, 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 the tool that I can just speak personally, the tool that Connie and I have used now for a decade that has been by far the single most powerful evidential uh, tool that we have in our toolbox to ensure that our marriage stays in a healthy, vibrant place is called the heart-to-heart process. We learned it from Paul and Lane Cutright. Uh, they have a book called Straight from the Heart. And it's really simple. If if we're not at a 10 on a scale of 10 in terms of love and passion and juicy, you know, if there's any funkiness, any staleness, any upset or anything else, one of us will say, can we do a heart-to-heart process? And, you know, if Connie's really upset, she might say, give me 15 minutes or something. I've got to cool down so she'll take a walk or something. <laughs> but then we sit in front of each other and one of us will begin, whoever usually requested the process, and say, um, it's important for me to say, blah, 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 and then say, whatever there is, like in one or two or three sentences, not like paragraphs, and then stop. And then the other person says, thank you, got it, or I understand. One of those three, thank you, got it, or I understand. Or can you clarify? But usually, thank you, got it, or I understand. And then the person continues. It's important for me to say, you know, body, 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 stop. Thank you. It's important for me to say, body, 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 you know. And then you just do that until the, until you say something like, it's important for me to say blank. Like, I think that's all there is for now. And then the other person does the same thing. And the genius of it is that in any relationship, there's usually sort of an imbalance of power or a perceived imbalance of power. And this levels the playing field. Both people feel heard. They know they've been heard. They get feedback. And then after both people have gone back and forth till there's just nothing left to say, then you do a round of appreciations because you're not necessarily back to full-blown love yet. And then you do a round of appreciations. And I would say, you know, I appreciate you for asking to do this process. And Connie, I say, thank you. Uh, I appreciate you. And I just thank her for every, I just appreciate her for as many things as I can. And if she begins it, sometimes she won't even be able to be, to thank me or, or to appreciate me. She'll say, I appreciate myself for asking to do this process. <laughs> Great. <laughs> you know, I, I appreciate the feeling of the sun on my skin, <laughs> you know, good, good. And then usually by the third or fourth thing, she can think of something to appreciate in me. But by doing it that way, by first clearing it, and then, and then coming to, and then uh, doing a round of appreciations. We're not just back to neutral. I mean, we're in tears. We make love. I mean, it's just, it's the most powerful. And, and, and it, and it's based on what we know evidentially works that people, when they really feel that they've been gotten, when somebody really hears you and, and, and you can, and you know you've been gotten, something releases and, and problems aren't so much solved as they just dissolve. So that would be probably the most effective, um, uh, evidential tool that we've used in our relationship. Okay, well, thank you very much. I, I just, as a, as a counselor and a listener, I wasn't quite making that connection to evidence-based spirituality and how it would function. So, it's anything that you have experienced as successful would be evidence-based. 
Well, not just anything that I've experienced, anything that, that the, the literature, I mean, there's just a lot of scientific literature now in terms of uh, what modalities, what approaches are effective and not. And we're, you know, it's, it's, it's getting that feedback. Um, one of the things here, here's another, here's probably the second most powerful evidential thing. And, and when I say evidential is that there's a lot of evidence that this kind of thing works is that in any relationship, uh, feedback is essential for the, for the system, for the relationship to evolve. And so, you know, to ask, you know, as a pastor, I would regularly ask my congregations, uh, when I, cause I pastored three churches over the course of a decade and I would ask each of them, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, uh, if your experience of my preaching or my pastoral care or my whatever is less than 10 and you can think of a way to make it a 10, I need to know that, mm-hmm. you know, so I would sometimes say, you know, uh, on a scale of zero to 10, how would you rate my preaching? And they would say, you know, an eight, what would it take to make it a 10? And by asking that, you know, and, and the same thing, you know, uh, as a husband, you know, I once a season or so, I'll do that with Connie, you know, I'll say, you know, okay, how have I been, in, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, you know, how has it been being married to me these last uh, six months or whatever? And if it's less than a 10, what would make it a 10? That kind of feedback is really useful because you're not then getting criticisms, you're getting the most useful possible feedback. So that would be another evidential tool. You I love that a, one. Love the yeah. feedback. And I'm going to hang up now and, and listen, but that one was really powerful, the feedback. Cool, uh, That's great. And, Michael, I just wanted to make one comment, which is you must have a lot of self-love in order to do that because what I have found is that people who don't love themselves cannot take feedback, mm. and uh, that's, that's just beautiful. Uh, do we have any more uh, questions, or, or should I just go on and ask more of myself? Well, there's one thing I wanted to just follow up because in, you know, I, think, I think one of the reasons why my book was endorsed by so many science and religion leaders, including Nobel Prize winners, is that it's practical spirituality. It's, mm-hmm. it's the, I've, got, I've got several chapters on evolutionary spirituality. Chapters 11 and 12, for example, are just practical exercises. It doesn't matter what your religion, what your metaphysics, what your philosophy, what your background, if you practice these exercises, you will experience thriving relationships mm-hmm. because these are evidential these these have been shown evidentially to help heal wounds to help uh, restore uh, uh, trust after conflict and so that's why I call it evolutionary spirituality is also practical spirituality Mm -hmm. and what I tell people is ignore my entire book don't even read any of it except chapters 11 and 12 Mm -hmm. because you know those are just the practical exercises of how to have a great life and how to have healthy relationships how tough is it for you to be on the road all the time believe it or not it is Awesome. We've done it for 11 years. We've spoken to 1,800 groups living in other people's homes, and we just have not gotten tired of it. It's just, it just doesn't, it hasn't gotten old yet. Now, maybe it will someday, but it sure hasn't. It, you know, even though we're technically homeless, we don't have a home, we don't have an apartment, we feel like we're the richest people in the world because we get to do this incredible work, this sacred science, this inspiring, evidential evolutionary work. We get to do it with each other because we're passionately in love with each other. We love mm. to live in this way. And there's probably not too many women that would want to live their lives on the road. So I'm married <laughs> to this extraordinary human being. Speaking of extraordinary, how if you, there was one thing that you would hope that our listeners today and on this podcast, what they would do as a result of hearing you today, what would that be? Other be, than to go to your website. No, 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 no. It, it, this is far more important than my website. They can forget any of that. <laughs> um, it would be to personify the future 
and ask myself, how is the future calling me to greatness? How can I serve the future? How can I be a blessing? Because everything we do in the moment ripples out of the future. So if you're kind to somebody, you're being a blessing to the future. If you're generous with somebody, you know, if they're nasty with you, but you interpret it generously, like they must have had a rough day, then that kind, generous interpretation is a blessing to the future. So for people to have legacy consciousness, how can I ensure uh, a healthy future? How could, and how might the future be calling me to greatness? And just to personify that, to have a conversation with the future. Um, you know, Christians can imagine that as the Christ, but you don't, you don't matter. It doesn't matter what your religion. So that would be, I think the most important thing is, is uh, how can I be a blessing to the future and how might the future be calling me to greatness? You know, the word greatness, I think, sometimes uh, uh, triggers people. And so, uh, you know, some people are going to be inspired by that, and some people are going to be intimidated by that. But you ask the question in two ways. You know, the other way is, how can I be a blessing? Right. And when we're asking that question, I mean, that's, I, you said it a minute ago, something so simple and so small can be a blessing to others. I don't think we've realized the impact that we have on one another. Exactly. And, and, and if there were one skill that I could, I wish I could impart to every young person, I think it's frankly the most important skill in life. It's the skill of learning to interpret life generously mm-hmm. because, you know, as you know, I'm sure Beth and probably many of your listeners do the, the main thing that, that determines the quality of any person's life isn't what happens to them. It's how they, they interpret what happens to them. Yes. And so developing the habit, like exercising a muscle, uh, exercising uh, one's, one's interpretive muscle. So you habitually start interpreting more and more generously. And, th- and an easy way to do that is at the end of the day, before you go to bed, just ask yourself, is there anything that happened today that I can interpret in a more generous way than I did in that moment? And so you, you can you can exercise that muscle on a day by day basis, getting ever better over the weeks and months that are interpreting life generously. That's well, that's wonderful. So now I have to ask the other side of the coin: uh, Is how do you feel, and in what situations do you feel the most stymied? Because you must have moments, <laughs> being a human, where you just feel like, ugh. Well, there are times. Uh, I'm not quite sure stymied is the right way because right. part of it is that I'm. I'm I, I love speaking to all kinds of groups and I've had so much practice at it that I don't get flustered. I, whether I, even if I speak to groups of atheists or groups of evangelicals or mixed groups. Now, mixed groups are, are challenging. One time I did a presentation in an auditorium that could have sat 300 people and, you know, eight atheists and, uh, or no, eight fundamentalists and seven atheists showed up and they <laughs> sat at, they sat in different parts of the auditorium and it was painful. You know, I mean, every attempt at humor, the, the, the whole room was dead silent. You know, so that kind of thing is challenging. I, I crawled into bed that night with Connie, and I said it was the program from hell. I don't know if I ever have to do that again. <laughs> but well, the only other, the only other thing is when I read about you know what I would call corporate evil. When I read about politicians yeah. that are voting to protect the financial interests of certain corporations, but not in the fi- not in the in the interest of of us as a, as a species, um, I I feel anger at times, but. Um, but that just motivates me to, to, to make a bigger difference. Well, I'm with you. Let's do it. Whether, whatever form we're working on, uh, which, whatever modality is the best for us, let's just keep supporting one another so that 
we have that feeling that we're not alone in this mm-hmm. and that there's so many people out there who really do care and many, many people who just need a way to express themselves. So before we leave uh, today, uh, I'd like you, Michael, again, to repeat your contact information and say anything that you would like to say uh, in closing. Sure. Well, the, the, um, our main website is thegreatstory.org. And um, I did a TED Talk, a TEDx Talk, called Why We Struggle. So if you just put my name, Michael Dowd, TED, T-E-D-X, you'll get there. It's, on, it's up on, uh, on YouTube. And that's the practical spirituality. That's our evolutionary psychology and evolutionary brain science. And um, that helps you, you know, knowing that kind of stuff can help you. And I would say, you know, again, my book is Thank God Revolution, chapters 11 and 12 are the practical stuff. And um, just find a place. The, the, I guess the one thing I would invite everybody to do is find those places of intersection between where your great joy and the world's great needs intersect. And those places where your joy and the world's needs intersect, that's your calling. That's your mission. That's your vocation. That's where you can be a blessing to others now and in the future in a way that also blesses you at the same time. Well, I feel blessed that you are in the world, you and your wife, and all the people who support you. And I also feel very blessed that you joined us today for our first show and to inaugurate Inside Out. Thank, Thank you, Beth. Thank you. Keep up the great work. Thank you. James? Yes, I'd like to inform our viewers and listeners of our next edition of Inside Out, which will be next week on the topic of intuition, should you trust it? Can you make it more reliable? Our guest will be Helen Helix DeSanto, a marriage and family therapist for nearly 30 years, who relies on her intuition to help clients deal with their issues. How does she do it? What can you do to become more intuitive? Join us next week. Until then, goodbye for now. Thank you for making us a part of your week. Listen for the next edition of Inside Out with Beth Green and James Maynard next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Have a great week.